Soviet authorities struggled on two occasions to confront the horrors of the past. Labeled amorphously as the repressions, it's a past that begins with Lenin, but is more closely associated with Stalin. It's a past that evokes the human dislocation, reign of terror, and massive loss of life inflicted by the state on the Soviet people. The first attempt to confront this past came in the years immediately following the death of Stalin by his successor, Nikita Khrushchev. The second attempt came 30 years later under the leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev. What motivated these efforts to confront the past? Why and in what ways did they fall short? How has the rise of Putin's authoritarian regime been facilitated by these failed efforts? To delve into these questions, I'm very pleased to welcome Professor Kathleen Smith from the Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies at Georgetown University to discuss her book, Remembering Stalin's Victims, Popular Memory and the End of the USSR. Kathleen, thank you for taking time to join this episode of Realms of Memory. Thank you. So to begin with, um, I thought it was interesting, your point of working through the past regarding repressions. The term repressions is is pretty vast and vague. And, and I mean, how do you pinpoint what it, what it exactly means and how many people it implicates and how far it goes? You had an interesting section in your book where you you talked about how expansive this is. So I, I thought that that might be an interesting place to start just to provide a little context. So uh, I think your adjectives vast and vague are really appropriate here because that term repressions is used to describe this huge wealth of, you know, unpleasant, horrible uh, things that took place uh, in the former Soviet Union. And you know, the Soviet Union had an extremely violent 20th century, if you think about it, starting with uh, entry into World War One, the revolution, civil war, consolidation of this often brutal communist regime. Uh, and where you kind of pin this moment in which the Soviet uh, state turned repressive, it is kind of a litmus test for Russians sort of about their politics. Typically, this term is used to describe Stalin's repressions, uh, which is a way of kind of not examining the pre-Stalin years, the early, uh, perhaps more romantic years of uh, the Bolshevik Revolution, and also a way to draw a line between Lenin and Stalin. So if the repressions are a mistake of Stalin, then you can talk about, if you're a communist, you know, reinstilling Leninist norms, going back to the original ideals of the revolution and so forth. Um, But in modern times, uh, you know, many researchers date the violence, you know, all the way back to 1917. So it is a very expansive term. uh, And I think it's almost a necessity because of the range uh, of, uh, you know, sort of state sponsored violence Um, to use modern language, um, that was carried out by the Soviet state against its own people. How many people are implicated? I mean, is there even a definitive number of how many people were affected? Yeah, there's no definitive number of victims. Uh, And I'll give you an example of some of the 
sort of big pieces uh, of the Stalinist repressions, and you'll see why uh, there's no accurate count. So often under this umbrella term falls, uh, for instance, the campaign against kulaks. These were Russian peasants who were considered to be wealthy. Now, by our standards, they were not that wealthy. We might have called them successful peasants, but these were people that maybe hired extra labor, that owned uh, several horses, that had you know substantial dwellings and so forth. Uh, so part of Stalin's policy towards the countryside was to promote collective farms. Peasants on a whole were not that interested in this notion, uh, and ultimately the Bolsheviks uh, relied on poor peasants to be the backbone of the new collective farm. Uh, and they disenfranchised, often expelled, arrested uh, wealthier peasants, uh, and drove them out of the villages. So this is a process that took place, you know, in many provinces with lots of variation. It's really impossible to go back now and try and count how many people uh, were victims of that, or to essentially assign the blame to identify all the perpetrators. Because you're not talking about the gulag, right? They're just disenfranchised for, from their, their farms. They were disenfranchised, some were arrested, and many were exiled. So they were loaded on, you know, carts or trains or barges and shipped to sort of relatively unsettled parts of the Soviet Union where there was a need for forced labor. And they were not allowed to leave those settlements. So you're right, it's not our typical sense of the gulag, but it was a form of... uh, you know, not quite imprisonment, right? But forced labor, restriction of rights. Um, and because the conditions in these places were so poor, right, that people were shipped up with what they could carry, uh, they often froze, starved, uh, didn't survive the first winter. So again, maybe the mm. centerpiece of Stalin's repressions is the traditional sort of gulag narrative. Someone is arrested for a politically inappropriate conversation and, you know, sent to a camp in Siberia and so forth. But again, this topic of repressions is so vast and so sweeping that you have to allow um, for different population groups being involved. And I think that's partly why um, there's never going to be an accurate count uh, of how many people were affected by Stalin's repressions. I I'm not uh, someone who is a quantitative political scientist. Um, So I often just say, you know, the answer is millions. And when you get up to millions, I'm not sure how much more it matters to to know specifics beyond that. The kulaks, uh, the wealthier farmers, but you also had whole ethnic groups, right, that were deported as well. Yes. So before World War II, uh, there were security fears uh, on the Western border. There were groups of... Poles, Germans, uh, Jews, other ethnic groups, Ukrainians that were uh, deported, uh, sometimes just, uh, you know, say to the other side of the Ukrainian Republic, sometimes farther to Central Asia. Um, And then during World War II, uh, Stalin was very suspicious that certain ethnic groups he thought would collaborate with the Germans as the Germans, you know, really rapidly occupied large swaths of Soviet territory. So from the Caucasus, um, the Chechens, for instance, were deported. 
from Crimea, the local Tatars were deported to Central Asia. So again, this isn't the classic gulag tale, but it is a part of this really uh, ruthless, centralized state, you know, assigning collective Mm -hmm. guilt in a way uh, to whole groups. And in all these cases, the state is short on resources. So, you know, they're putting people in boxcars and shipping them off to locations that are not really set up to handle a huge number of displaced persons. So there's a high death rate um, that accompanies all these deportations. Is the famine that happens in the Ukraine, is that just part of the, the larger process of collectivization, one of the, one of the, the outcomes? Or, or, because I thought that was interesting, you mentioned later on that when people look back on the repressions, that in some areas, it's really seen as by some nationalities, it's seen as a form of genocide. Yes. And I will be the first to admit that I am not an expert on the topic of the famines. Um, There were this great famine that hit Ukraine, parts of Russia and Kazakhstan. uh, And it's very contentious whether this was uh, ethnically targeted, um, as as many uh, Ukrainians, for instance, say, or again, whether this is a incompetent uh, state that has, you know, little energy or little concern uh, for its citizens at some level. And when you when you refer to the repressions, it's not just what happens at the time, right? It's the it's the aftermath, or right? it's something that seems like it carries on long afterwards. That. Uh, uh, it, that it, there's a ripple effect, right? That affects the children, right? Of parents who who are executed or sent off to prison, right? That the people who are stigmatized afterwards, that, that it casts a long shadow. Absolutely. So let me say a little bit about sort of, you know, what the classic uh, kind of story of Stalin's repressions is and how that had a long shadow. So, the most well-known piece of this sort of violent Soviet history is often referred to as the Great Purges. And it began in the mid-1930s after the assassination, which was very possibly a staged killing, uh, of a major party figure, uh, a fellow named Sergei Kirov uh, in Leningrad. So this assassination was interpreted or publicized by the regime as an act of terrorism. And it triggered a whole campaign against class enemies, saboteurs, political rivals, etc. It figured in show trials against uh, Stalin's rivals that took place in the 1930s. It became a pretext for gutting what legal protections uh, people had uh, in the Soviet Union. They secretly, for instance, uh, allowed the secret police to use torture to obtain confessions. Uh, And Stalin in this moment essentially said to the secret police, you know, you guys are like five years behind uh, in fighting the enemies of the state. And that mobilized the secret police to really look for enemies everywhere. And so when you think of ripples, I would say, first of all, the purge itself had ripples. You arrest one person, you start looking at that person's connections and relatives and, uh, you know, often wives were arrested and they were charged because why had they not turned in 
you know, their husband uh, for, say, anti-Soviet beliefs. And, you know, these were innocent people. So the wife is saying, well, he never said anything bad about me. I never, I didn't know anything about this. But that was not an acceptable excuse. So these purges rippled through uh, workplaces, communities, families, etc. And then, as you said, um, the stigma uh, attached to the children as well. So if your uh, parent had been convicted of anti-Soviet activity and sent to the gulag or executed, you know, at every workplace for any institute of higher education, you had to fill in a form and share that information. Uh, And so it was really uh, a black mark uh, that kept people, you know, essentially at the margins of society once this terrible fate had struck their family, or they covered up that information. But once you cover up that information, then you're already guilty of a crime, right? So that was a very difficult decision to have to make. So in that black mark, I mean, does that affect you? You're trying to find a job or trying to find an apartment. Does that uh, disadvantage you in real ways? It was a huge disadvantage. Um, So maybe not so much in finding housing, but in finding employment uh, or holding on to one's employment uh, and in receiving education. Uh, It also was a black mark, to be honest, in things like uh, finding a spouse, right? Do you want to marry someone who has this stigma, associate yourself with someone who has this dangerous past uh, that might, you know, reach out uh, and affect, you know, your future children as well. And it's interesting, Gorbachev, for instance, doesn't talk about this, but he had uh, two grandfathers who were uh, briefly subject to the repressions. Um, His grandfathers actually survived. Um, But his wife, Raisa, uh, one of her grandfathers uh, was also, you know, arrested and did not survive. And one wonders at what point in their courtship they shared that information with each other. Um, but it is something, you know, in later years uh, that he that he disclosed that they both shared this experience of having that trauma uh, within their families. And so you have this horrendous past. Stalin dies in 1953. Why not uh, just take the Spanish approach and put a lid on it and move on? I mean, why address this at all? Why did the leadership feel a need to to work through this in any way? And then when they do, how how is how, why is it such a difficult thing? Why can't they use it to their advantage? Like you you mentioned that uh, this is something that a lot of regimes can use to, to start fresh, to draw a line between themselves and the previous regime, to establish their own legitimacy, right? You use this term inverse legitimacy, that you can contrast yourself, your regime with a previous regime and uh, put yourself on a more credible footing. Um, so why, why address this to begin with? What's the need? And then when they do, why is it so problematic? Retroactive justice. Why can't they, uh, why do they struggle with doing this? That's a great set of questions. Um, and I will tell you that I find that decision uh, by Nikita Khrushchev, one of Stalin's heirs, so to speak, uh, to make his famous secret speech in which he 
denounces certain aspects of uh, Stalin's policy and admits, you know, that there were these unjust uh, repressions, again, to use that word that the that the Russians always use. I mean, I think that's such a fascinating topic that um, that was the subject of my most recent book, which is called Moscow 1956, that just takes a deep dive into that year uh, where Khrushchev makes that choice. But I'll give you the short version. The short version is that at first, uh, the reaction is, as you predicted, to just not say anything, to try and, you know, uh, not discuss uh, what's happened. And I'll say here that, again, you have to think in the Soviet Union, right, even the leaders themselves didn't know what public opinion was because the, you know, strictures on free speech were so strong. So, as Stalin uh, was was dying of a stroke, uh, his heirs mobilized the Moscow garrison, put the soldiers on alert because they literally didn't know how people would react. Now, people reacted uh, in a way that the leadership preferred. That is, they were sort of knocked over by grief and distress and were worried about what would come next. Um, and turned out in huge numbers, you know, to go and view Stalin's corpse as he laid in state and so forth. But what do you do if you're now in charge of running the country? And this great figure who has been, you know, the center really of Soviet uh, life is is dead. Um, in my book, I write about there being a sort of period of silent to Stalinization. And in this moment, Without making public announcements, uh, you can see the leadership start to dial down some of this cult-like following of Stalin. So, you know, you don't have to quote Stalin in every speech. Suddenly his birthday is not a huge national holiday, etc. So that takes place in the public sphere. uh, And certain messages are sent. So before Stalin's death, there was a new wave of purges starting, a very anti-Semitic uh, sort of targeted purge uh, against Jews. And at the center of this was the so-called doctor's plot, where some famous uh, surgeons and medical professionals were accused of having poisoned uh, Soviet leaders. So after Stalin's death, there's an announcement in the newspaper that this information was incorrect, that there was not a conspiracy and that evidence had been obtained by illegal means. So that's kind of a signal to the public that, you know, we're not going to use the secret police to kind of torture false confessions out of people uh, anymore. And so even though it caused a lot of confusion with the ordinary public that didn't quite understand what was going on with this, um, you know, I think it was an important signal. But then you know, the question is, can you just continue without addressing the past? And as you mentioned, I use this term inverse legitimacy. I think ultimately Khrushchev decided that it wasn't going to work for the party to make serious changes in Stalin's policies without somehow criticizing Stalin. And he came to believe that the party could, in fact, kind of benefit by being more open and admitting to its mistakes and that this would restore people's faith and enthusiasm and allow the party to go forward with like a newly committed populace behind it. So that I think is, is the positive spin that Khrushchev put on this. Now, 
Not all of the leadership agreed with him. On the contrary, most of them had a lot more trepidation, I think, knowing that the first question that would arise would be, well, where were you when Stalin, you know, was carrying out the purges or, you know, framing his rivals and so forth? Because all the people at the top of Stalin's system got there by being loyal to Stalin. So they were all implicated in this. And, you know, only Stalin had passed away, right? The rest of them are still standing. Uh, And so it became a problem to essentially break with the past without breaking with the people of the past, essentially making Stalin, um, you know, sort of the one scapegoat uh, for what had happened. But he's not the only scapegoat, right? There are others who were targeted right off the bat. There were people from the secret police that were targeted right off the bat. In fact, uh, many of your listeners may have seen the comedic film uh, Death of Stalin, uh, where it, in not entire with not entire historical accuracy, uh, you know, points out that the first thing that the the survivors do is they all kind of turn on the secret police chief Laurenti Beria because one thing uh, that unites the rest of the party members is that they're tired of having the secret police be so powerful. So um, Lavrenti Beria is arrested, accused of a whole array of crimes, some of which he definitely did, some of which like being an agent for the British during the Russian Civil War are like extremely unlikely. Uh, He had a closed trial and he was executed. So essentially they dealt with Beria in a Stalinist way. And then after that, form sort of a collective security pact of, you know, we're not going to do that to each other anymore. You know, that we will have a more peaceful uh, form of politics at the pa- at the top. How do you, how do you critique what came before without undermining the, the, the entire system, right? How do you do this in a, almost like a surgical way? Yeah. And you see, you know, during this brief thaw that follows, you know, that there are these sort of clever critical thinkers who are saying, well, you're saying that Stalin created a cult of personality in which he took credit for everything and everything was up to his decision. But the way that you're now deposing him is like a cult of personality in reverse. You're saying it was all up to him. And that's not realistic, right? He had these agencies and institutions that were working for him if you're telling us this, you know, we don't want this to happen again, what are you doing for institutional reform? Or, you know, where is the investigation or the trial or what have you? But that kind of speech was unacceptable to the party. And people who tried to make a systemic critique were very quickly silenced, including already, uh, you know, by the end of 1956, there were young students who went to prison for, um, you know, calling for uh, a real settling of accounts. I mean, is Khrushchev doing anything different in 1956 that hadn't already happened in 1953? I mean, isn't he still pinning the blame on Stalin and a few people and really not looking beyond that? I agree that that's the case. I mean, I'm a political scientist by training. And so when I look at this, I say, well, you know, he didn't really upset these institutions. He didn't, you know... Uh, say, reform the entire court system, etc. You can see all these shortcomings. But I do think that he did something 
really important and something that needed to be done uh, for there to be any hope of reform. And that is, he admitted that the party, the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, was fallible, that they had made a mistake. And in a way, it kind of breaks the spell in which you couldn't criticize the party at all. And what uh, Khrushchev says, and this is echoed and implemented at a much larger scale by Gorbachev, you know, some 30 years later, is that the party needs constructive criticism. If you really support the party, believe in its goals, you know, then you can be part of a constructive conversation. And he compared this to Lenin. He said, Lenin, you know, persuaded his opponents of why his policies were correct. And Stalin purged his opponents. So again, he's sending a signal that times have changed, you know, that this is going to be, uh, the Russians joke about this, they call it a vegetarian era. So, you know, you can get in trouble, but, you know, it's a vegetarian era. You're not going to be, uh, you're not going to be executed. And once that happens, right, the possibilities for more free speech uh, really rise. Now, the regime is not really clear about what the limits are, and that makes the rest of the year 1956 and indeed the whole thaw a very bumpy process as you have writers, intellectuals, other people kind of testing the limits of reform, um, and the limits are always set by above. So, you know, sometimes you push the limits and and you pay for it. And there's pushback, right? So there's pushback throughout from within the party and even among intellectuals. Yes. So there is a uh, strong sentiment among members of the party elite, but also some members of the public, that the most important aspects of Stalinism were success with industrialization and collectivization and the victory in World War II. And some of them admit that there were excesses, that the purges happened, that the party could have been you know, more gentle, etc. But ultimately, they think that it was worth it, that the ends do justify the means, and that essentially uh, these you know, black spots on Soviet history are you know, just going to be exploited by the Soviet Union's enemies. And therefore, uh, one shouldn't have to talk about it. So yes, make a decision. We're not going to do this anymore, but why air one's dirty laundry, so to speak? And so um, there's constant battles over what can be published, what can be said. I mean, Khrushchev's speech in the West, we call it the secret speech. And that's because it was made initially to a closed session uh, of the 20th Party Congress, so these party elite. Uh, And they were not allowed to, you know, have a copy. Uh, It was not published in the Soviet Union until 1989. But it wasn't an entirely secret speech because uh, once Khrushchev had delivered it and thought that it went all right, um, he pushed home the point that party members need to know this. uh, And, you know, young communists need to know this. So he initiated a campaign where the speech was, was printed in a small edition and sent out to party leaders across the Soviet Union. And they then went and read it out loud at meeting after meeting after meeting so that people would be informed of what Khrushchev had said. 
and I didn't know this when I was writing uh, Remembering Stalin's Victims, Gorbachev himself uh, was at that moment a young sort of party employee back in his home region of Stavropol. And he was one of the people tasked with going through the countryside, convening party meetings, and reading Khrushchev's entire secret speech out loud. So in some ways, I like to think maybe he was setting himself up to be a reformer because he was literally standing in Khrushchev's shoes and delivering uh, this denunciation of Stalin over and over again. Well, that's fascinating, uh, especially because that point you make later on that he seemed to be like, you, you're, it's almost like you're struggling to understand, well, how could he be, how could he have been part of this 20th party generation because he seemed to be so detached from that history. <laughs> he seemed like he, he couldn't understand it. He couldn't understand the, the pain, the popular reaction. And he's out there personally delivering this message. Yes. And I mean, I suppose one could say that, that maybe he had dealt with his trauma to a large extent and, uh, you know, maybe thought that like, you know, look, guys, 30 years have passed. Let's concentrate on our terrible economy. You know, or let's deal with some of these other, you know, pressing yeah. challenges. Um, so yeah. I, I think that he understood some of the pain. What he didn't understand was why people wanted to essentially like harp on this issue now when they could be, uh, you know, making a better future for the Soviet Union. And they both have a very constructive attitude towards the past, right? That you can use the past uh, in, in ways to improve society, uh, but that you have to kind of direct and, and limit the, the discussion, right? Exactly. And they both, in effect, still believe in a model where, you know, the party is explaining to you how you ought to understand things. Uh, and I would say that's extremely strong under Khrushchev. I mean, Khrushchev is a fascinating personality. He's somebody who considered himself an expert on everything. And so to have the party still being the one that, you know, delivers the definitive understandings uh, of how the world works and what was important about the past is quite normal to him. Gorbachev, uh, again, as, as you mentioned, is sort of a child of the 20th party. You know, he was a young person during the thaw when there were, you know, sort of fascinating, challenging literary works being published and discussion clubs and so forth. He embraces that more, so he is more open to pluralism and a plurality of voices. Um, but I think he too is really only able to act because he thinks at heart that the majority of the people share his desire for an improved socialism. You know, and that does not turn out to be true. Maybe his openness is a product of of, of being part of that generation. So op openness is confidence. Yeah. And I think that, you know, Gorbachev, he came from this rural background, but he was educated in the best university uh, in the Soviet Union, Moscow State University. Uh, he went to law school, which was not a very prestigious uh, part of the Soviet education system. But he, um, he did his senior thesis on, you know, Western parliamentary regimes and what was wrong with them, right? But so even though he was writing about what was wrong with them, you know, from a Soviet perspective, you see somebody who is curious about foreign countries, who's interested in, you know, alternatives, and who's very curious. And I think he does carry that with him and make policies that reflect, um, 
you know, an expectation that educated people do want to know more, do want to be, you know, trusted to be able to voice their own opinions and so forth. So, I mean, one of the most dramatic changes that's happening, right, and it doesn't happen right away, you, you have millions of people that are still lingering in these prison camps, this sprawling network of prison camps, and it doesn't, it's not like they just get released after Stalin dies, right? It takes the regime, the new regime is not just struggling how to come to terms with the past and who to blame, but it takes them three years, right, before they really address this population, Part of Khrushchev's uh, motivation is that, like other members of the elite, many people from his, you know, circles were arrested and sent off to the gulag. And so after Stalin's death, uh, people with the best political connections are immediately writing letters, you know, from their places of imprisonment uh, to their most famous contacts saying, you know that I'm innocent, like, help me out. And so some of Khrushchev's close contacts are rehabilitated legally. They're allowed to return to Moscow. uh, And it's very difficult for him to meet with them. But they all say the same thing. You have to do something. You can't leave it like this. And the longer you take to do it, the harder it's going to be for you to explain. Right? So there is pressure from former prisoners to have a more systematic approach to releasing survivors and rehabilitating them. And after Khrushchev makes a secret speech, this is something I read about in Moscow 1956, he forms these commissions that include one rehabilitated high-ranking party member, so somebody who's been in the camps, who's who's been purged, uh, and a prosecutor and, you know, some other, they they need three people to, to be part of this, They send them out to Siberia, everywhere, and they conduct a review of all the prisoners in every camp. And so lots of people are released in that moment. Um, But all that is done behind the scenes. It's not written about in the press. That's how you control it, right? That's how you control the, the treatment of the past or control the narrative. Even though you're addressing the release of millions of people, it has to be done in a discreet way. Yes. And ideally, those prisoners should understand two things, that they should be grateful for the party for releasing them. And secondly, that it is better not to speak of such things. So you get this return to life, but it's a return still to the stunted life. You're not going to get a medal. (laughs) You know, you're not necessarily going to get your old job back. Right. Um, So it's a it's a partial uh, a partial restoration, but it's very painful for people because, you know, again, we talked about that stigma. They would like to have their names cleared. Some famous figures get that. This is one thing I guess I'm struggling a little bit to understand. You, you have the release, right? You have, like you said, these traveling commissions go out. It takes three years. Uh, finally, uh, in 1956, that's the year that you have the, the prison camps that are emptied and millions of people return home. But then you have rehabilitation, which is something totally separate, correct? Am I understanding this correctly? Where the state moves much more slowly, much the much more limited process. Right. So these commissions go out, and often what they do is they like shorten the sentence, or they amnesty you, so you're free to go. 
But that's not the same as saying you were innocent, right? It just says like, you know, there's no point in holding you any longer. So to get legal rehabilitation, you have to appeal to the prosecutor's office. And the prosecutor's office is overwhelmed, right, by all these claims. And initially, they're looking like case by case, you know, before 1956, they're looking to see, well, are there surviving witnesses? Um, Are people recanting their testimony? Or let's find the secret policeman who did the interrogations. Oh, he was purged himself. Well, what are we going to do then? So the state didn't want to make mistakes and somehow, you know, pardon or, you know, rehabilitate people who were, in fact, anti-Soviet or criminals or so forth. After 1956 and the secret speech, the process is definitely expedited. But it definitely doesn't apply to everyone. And not everyone even asks for rehabilitation because it means you know, drawing attention to yourself, having more contact with official agencies. Some people prefer to try and, you know, melt back into their surroundings. Um, So again, when we talk about like numbers, there are numbers we can see for how many people are rehabilitated uh, in a given year. And sometimes we can see how many of those are posthumous, how many of those are survivors. Um, But it certainly doesn't encompass all the victims, especially those where there is no one left to appeal for them, right? So if you have a whole family, essentially, that was purged, uh, or, you know, whose survivors died during World War II, there's no one left to say, hey, you know, let's look into Uncle So-and-So's case. Let's ask that he be rehabilitated. So yes, it's a very complicated, it's a very complicated issue, the returnees and how they return and who applies for rehabilitation. And some of the big famous victims, um, people who were, you know, colleagues of Lenin who became subjects of the show trials under Stalin, those people aren't rehabilitated until the Gorbachev era. That's just like too politically sensitive regime you know, won't do it. I love the, um, you had one example that you gave about how murky that process of rehabilitation was that when people were summoned, they thought they were going to be sentenced all over again. (laughs) This fear of what was going to happen. Yes. The sad story of the guy who shows up, he's got his bag packed. He's wearing his, you know, his winter coat and his boots, because if the prosecutor summons you, then that just probably means like you're going as, as the Russians say on another tour of the camps. So, you know, you have to be ready. But yeah, it's definitely an atmosphere of fear, even after the secret speech. Maybe the key point, like you said here, is that uh, there wasn't maybe the expectation of justice. <laughs> People were happy to be released. Maybe maybe you have to wait 30 years for demands to increase. And maybe it has to move on to the next generation. Maybe the first generation is still shell- is still traumatized and uh, uh, is just happy to be free. I, I think that's really well put. You know, that uh, one can imagine that people's expectations were pretty limited after what they had been through. Yeah. And again, especially when they look at the party and they, you know, there's no, you know, 1956, you could think like, now that would have been a moment to purge the party. You could purge the people who like went along with all these terrible repressions and so forth. But that's not what happens. Right. The part the people at the top of the party you know, for the most part, don't really change. So I don't think that inspires a lot of confidence uh, in people who are released from the gulag to think that, oh, now I can go and they're going to want to hear my whole story and they're going to want to truly help me out. You, you mentioned there's an initial attempted at commemoration, right? Khrushchev is really the first one 
to propose the idea of, of, of a memorial. Maybe it doesn't come from him, but he backs it uh, at this early stage, and, and maybe nothing ever comes of it. But uh, to just to get at the reperca- repercussions of the of the of the repressions and the, the trauma of of the people, I think you're. I thought it was interesting your point that the proposals that that come out at that time. It's almost like people can't even grasp the entire uh, 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 the entirety of, of what had happened, right? It's filtered on individual level, right? The, the, in terms of the proposals for how you commemorate it. Right? Yeah, I think that again, this the amount of uh, openness about, say, the extent of the purges was very limited still under Khrushchev. And so you're right when people try to think of like, well, how would you commemorate this? What's the appropriate thing to do? I think there was kind of a lack of imagination. Now, Khrushchev did say, um, you know, that essentially we should build a monument to the, you know, the innocent uh, victims of Stalin's repressions. Some people didn't like that word innocent because it sort of implied like, oh, well, not everybody who was arrested was innocent, right? So again, you know, maybe these are just the people the regime uh, rehabilitates who are going to get this treatment. Um, but I will say what what Khrushchev actually does uh, is kind of the antithesis of building a monument. So there's no monument to victims built in this time period. But what does happen uh, in 1962 at the tw- after the 22nd Party Congress, when there's another sort of burst of anti-Stalin speech is they remove Stalin's body from the mausoleum. So Stalin had been put into the Lenin mausoleum uh, in 1953, which was a place of sort of pilgrimage by, you know, true believers, children's school groups and so forth. Um, But quietly in the middle of the night, they take him out in 1962 uh, and change sort of the, you know, the inscription on the mausoleum uh, back to just being the Lenin mausoleum. So, you know, that's kind of a demotion for Stalin, but they bury him nearby in the Kremlin wall. And there's sort of a discreet, small uh, sort of pillar with a a small bust of Stalin uh, that's put up there. So I think that kind of symbolizes the fact that, you know, it's not that they say everything about Stalin was bad, but they just sort of, you know, put him farther away from, from Lenin. And it seems like this, aggressive a period of aggressive desolidization maybe it becomes more possible to publish accounts of what happened I mean, is, it, is it that the period where you get you just get more literary accounts that, that that come out yes and so um in the book i talk about uh for instance the publication of alexander solzhenitsyn's a day in the life of ivan denisevich and this is the most famous literary work Uh, about Stalin's repressions. And it is written by a man who himself uh, had been a prisoner. He was arrested uh, in the midst of his service in World War II because of some, like, incautious things that he had written in letters uh, to friends of his. Um, And he, you know, served a fairly long sentence um, uh, in the gulag for that. And so... Solzhenitsyn wrote this novella where he created a fictional character who was a former peasant, a sort of Soviet everyman. And the book described a day uh, in his life and the kind of people that were around him in the camps, you know, people who had been arrested for various, you know, sort of 
bad reasons and so forth. Um, and the story goes that Khrushchev approved of this novel and became a big supporter of it because what he liked about the main character is that he was a hard worker and an honest person. So it describes, you know, how he spends his day, you know, laying brick part of, you know, a forced labor brigade and so forth. But, you know, essentially, you know, continuing to be, uh, a responsible, hardworking person being kind of that ideal of the Soviet worker, albeit, you know, in this terrible circumstance. So that novella, which is published by a literary magazine, becomes like the sensation of the decade and uh, is really the high point of uh, openness, I would say, about the purges. Maybe you can use that book because it features the horrendous past, but it does so by focusing on the nobility of the people. Yes. And because this worker is not thinking about whose fault is this, you know, like what should be done? It is very much a snapshot of a prisoner's life and not some kind of, you know, critical assessment of the whole system. Now, ironically, Solzhenitsyn, as I'm sure your listeners know, goes on to write the Gulag Archipelago, a three volume sort of history of state violence and forced labor in the Soviet Union. But that was not the book that you put forward, you know, in 1962, if you want to get published. In the years following the death of Stalin, Soviet leaders were divided about how to remember the past. Fearful of the charges that might be raised against them, conservatives preferred silence as the safest way forward. Liberals called for a clean break with the past through more truth-telling, justice, and institutional reform. Khrushchev tried to stake out a middle ground by denouncing Stalin's terror while casting the party as Stalin's greatest victim. While Khrushchev's thaw allowed for some degree of constructive criticism, there was no support for raising fundamental questions about state institutions or identifying the perpetrators of past crimes. Next month, tune into the second half of my interview with Kathleen Smith in part two of this episode. Find out how a dissident movement took up the torch of truth-telling and battled with the conservative Soviet regime determined to put a lid on the past. Find out how Gorbachev's failed efforts to save the Soviet Union unleashed a firestorm of popular memory work. Find out why Kathleen Smith describes the grassroots memory work of this period as a missed opportunity to put the newly created Russian Federation on a more solid, democratic footing. I would like to extend my deepest thanks to Kathleen Smith for participating in this episode. I'm especially grateful to Kathleen for her patience as I work through the kinks of a new recording system. If you've enjoyed this episode, please recommend it to a friend and review us on your favorite podcast app. I'm your host, Rick Dadarian. Thank you for listening to Realms of Memory.